The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit www.jacobswellgb.org. These are the emotions that Jesus' disciples and friends were feeling that Good Friday and that Sabbath Saturday. Their pain was probably multiplied by the fact that they just witnessed a horrific torture sequence. If you've ever seen a presentation of the crucifixion on a movie or on a TV screen, you've probably watched it with your hands over your eyes because you've seen how gory and horrible it is. The disciples watched all of this unfold before their eyes. They saw Jesus being beaten beyond recognition. They watched as his flesh was torn from his back. They observed as the crowns were pressed into his heads. They heard the clank of the hammer and the screams of their Savior as the nails were driven through his hands and his feet. They witnessed him fighting for his final breaths and after complete exhaustion, collapsing into suffocation. Their sorrow must have been unimaginable. But it gets even worse than that. Not only did they witness their loved one die in a horrific, torturous method, but on that Good Friday, all of their hope died too. You see, in the passage we're going to cover today, we read a story about some men redescribing the events of Good Friday. And they say this, they say, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. And then here is the part I want to focus on. They say, but we had hoped, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. They had put all their hope in this man, Jesus, all their hope of redemption and salvation. And now not only was their son and brother and friend dead, but with him, their hope was buried in the grave. But then Sunday happens. If you would please open up to Luke chapter 43. If you are in the Red Bible, it is page 884. If you are in the Children's Bible, it is page 1295. You will want to keep that open. Uh, we'll be reading through it as we go through the sermon. You've probably heard the saying, don't put all your eggs in one basket. Not sure if that's applicable to Easter and Easter egg hunts, but you have heard it said, don't put all your eggs in one basket. It's a proverb saying, don't risk everything for the success of one endeavor. Because if you concentrate all of your resources into one thing, one place, or one person, you could lose it all. For example, don't invest all your money into one company because if that company goes under, if the, if the basket is dropped and the eggs fall apart, you have lost absolutely everything, and you will be in financial ruins. Well, the disciples had put all their eggs in one basket, and that basket was Jesus, and that basket was crushed on the cross, and it was buried in the grave. And they were there without hope, wondering what God was doing. You may be here today, 
And because it's Easter, you are dressed as nice as you will be dressed all year. And later you will take pictures and you will smile and you will look happy. But inside you are searching for hope. Inside you are desperate for hope. Maybe you are even utterly hopeless because you have been beaten down by life, beaten down by a loved one, beaten down by your own sin. And if you're here today struggling to find hope, we have good news for you today. And the good news is this. Sunday happened. And because Sunday happened, hope happened for the disciples. And that means hope can happen for you. Today, we're going to walk a path that restores hope to hopeless people. Before we dig in and look at this story of hope, Let's pray. Lord, we come to you today, God, and some of us come here today absolutely hopeless, wondering what life is all about, if there is a reason to go on living. Some of us here today have a hope in you, but we function daily as if we don't. Anxious, desperate, wandering, joyless. Lord God, restore the hope in our hearts today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The first thing we see in the account of Jesus' resurrection is hope rejected. Let's start Luke 24, verse 1. Page 884 in the Red Bible again. But on the first day of the week, which was Sunday, at early dawn, they, some of the women disciples, went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember, Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. We'll see a theme highlighted throughout this passage. God is constantly pointing the disciples back to the word of God. Verse 8, And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. As we look at these opening verses of Luke chapter 24, it may appear to us that these women had believed in the resurrection. After all, the stone was rolled away, the body was gone, angels appeared in dazzling apparel. They said very directly, Jesus is not here, but he has risen. Remember what he told you. He told you this was going to happen. And then the women go back and they tell the disciples. And so we look at this and we may think these women believed. But if we turn to the gospel of John, we actually get to read what these women said to the disciples. They returned to the disciples and they did not say, Jesus has risen just as he said he would. Rather, they returned saying, 
They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. These women heard the hope of resurrection, and they rejected the hope of resurrection. The angels and the teachings of Jesus was not proof enough to these women. They believed that Jesus' body had been stolen and taken away and put someplace else. Verse 10, Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. What was it that the disciples did not believe? What was it that seemed as an idle tale to them? It was the same thing that the women didn't believe. You see, we see later in verse 22 that when the disciples come back, or I'm sorry, when the women come back to the disciples, they do report what the angel says. They do report that the angel said that Jesus was risen, but they themselves did not yet believe it. And the disciples say they don't believe it and that it seems to them as an idle tale. Verse 12. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloth by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. This word marvel is an indication, the first indication, that the seed of hope is being planted. This word marvel means bewildered amazement, to wander with admiration, It's the same word used to describe the disciples' response to Jesus' miracles. When he calmed the sea, when he healed the paralytic, when he made the mute speak, the maimed to behold, and the blind to see, they described as marveling at what they had seen. And here we see with Peter, and probably even the women, that even in their doubting, even in their outright rejection of the resurrection, There is this small seed, this small flicker of hope buried deep inside the dark caverns of their soul. We move on to verse 13. It's a change of setting. Two more disciples, not the apostles, but other disciples of Jesus. Verse 13. That very day, Sunday, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he, Jesus, said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. It's a term for mourning. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know these things that has happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the prophets, and how our chief priests, our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped, there's their hope, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yet and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. Verse 14. 
Verse 22, moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said. But him they did not see. And he, Jesus, said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all the things the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scripture the things concerning himself. At the end here, we see that Jesus opens up to them, Moses and the prophets. This is the Old Testament. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, the Old Testament is the first two-thirds of the Bible, and it was completed 400 years before the birth of Christ. And what we see is that Jesus is pointing them back to the Old Testament to show that he has fulfilled all of the promises, all of the expectations, all of the hopes of the Old Testament by his death and his resurrection. And so Jesus sits there and he teaches them the Bible. But he also teaches them that all of the Bible is about him. This doesn't mean that every single verse points to Jesus but that every single verse in its context, in its broader scope of the story, points to Jesus. Dr. Brian Chappell laid this out very easily for us. He tells us that every Old Testament text in its context is either predictive of the work of Christ, such as the 300 prophecies fulfilled in Jesus, or it is preparatory of the work of Christ, the Old Testament law showing us our sin and our need for a Savior, or the sacrificial system fulfilled in Christ, or it is reflective of the work of Christ, that God frees his people from slavery in Egypt to come out and to worship him, just as Christ frees us to go and worship him. One of our core values here at Jacob's Well that you would see on the back of the bulletin is that we seek to be gospel-centered. We believe that all of Scripture points to Jesus, and we get this from Luke chapter 24, in which Christ says, the law and the prophets are all about me. The disciples had plenty of evidence that Jesus was raised from the dead. Not only did they have his teaching before he was crucified, but they also had angels reminding them of it. They had an empty tomb. They had the whole Old Testament pointing to the reality that Christ would be raised from the dead. But they rejected this hope. They rejected the hope of the resurrection. And the question is, why? And I think there are many reasons. One reason they rejected hope of the resurrection is because it did not fit their paradigm. It was not a conceivable option for them. I don't know if you remember when you first heard of the internet or Wi-Fi. It was just some bizarre thing that you had no, no, no structure to fit in your framework. It was something that they could not conceive. I think they also doubted and rejected this hope because they had been disappointed. They were jaded. 
All of you have experienced this. All of us have been put our hope in something or someone and they have let us down. Most recently it happened to the disciples and that they were expecting Jesus to come and to redeem Israel from the Romans, to kick the Romans out and raise up the nation of Israel. And that hope died in the grave. And so they were reluctant to hope again. And the third reason, I think the most prominent reason why the disciples rejected hoping in Jesus' resurrection is a verse found later on in this passage. You don't have to look there, but in verse 41, there is a peculiar phrase. I don't know if you've ever had it where you've read a Bible story for the hundredth time. You're like, I never saw that before. This is one of those cases for me. And it's something that has stuck with me all week that I have meditated on. In verse 41, it says the disciples disbelieved for joy. What an interesting phrase. They disbelieved for joy. As I thought about what in the world does that mean, I think the best way to explain it to you is is with an example. When I was growing up, there were these TV commercials for Publishers Clearing House. Maybe you remember them. But you would see these people get out of a minivan with balloons and video cameras, and then they would come with this big check, like literally a huge check. And they would knock on the door, and the homeowner would open up, and they would say, John, Jane Doe, you have just won $1 million or $5 million, wherever it might be, from Publishers Clearing House. And after they regained their breath, they would usually say something along the lines of, I can't believe this. Is this for real? Is this a trick? Who put you out to this? You see, they disbelieved for joy. Does that make sense? Nothing this good had happened in their life before. And they knew that if it were true, if it were not just some trick, if they really won $1 million, that it would change everything. That they could pay off their school debt, their house debt, their credit card debt. They could be free from all debt and they could go and live free. And so they disbelieved for joy. You have heard the old adage, if it is too good to be true, it probably is. The disciples were presented with a hope far greater than a million dollars. They were presented with the resurrection of their friend, their teacher, their brother, their Messiah, their Redeemer. They were offered the forgiveness of all of their debt and all of their sin before a holy God. And they rejected hope because they knew that if it was actually true, if Jesus actually raised from the dead, it would change everything. And so they rejected because of hope. They disbelieved for joy. Some of you are here today and you are so jaded and bitter and angry. Your heart is protected because you feel like God has let you down. Can I just tell you the disciples know what that feels like? The disciples put all of their hope, all of their trust in Jesus, all of their joy, and it was buried in the grave. And they were so hesitant to hope again. And so they rejected the hope of the resurrection. But then Sunday happened. 
And Jesus conquered their hopeless hearts with indisputable evidence. The author of the Gospel of Luke, which is Luke. They teach you that in seminary. Was a doctor. He was not an apostle. He didn't travel with Jesus. He didn't see Jesus uh, in his ministry or raised from the dead. He didn't see the miracles of Jesus. But what Luke did is he set out and interviewed eyewitnesses, and he collaborated all these eyewitnesses for this one purpose, which he states at the beginning of his book. He says that he had written this gospel that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught, the life, the birth, the resurrection of Jesus. The gospel of Luke is written to skeptics. The gospel of Luke is written to people who have rejected hope. And it's been given to us to give us a credible testimony of Christ. Let's get back to the Maze Road. Verse 28. So they, Jesus and the two grieving disciples, drew near to village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther. Like today, it would be inappropriate to invite yourself over for dinner. So he pretended like he was going further, but they urged him strongly saying, stay with us for it is towards evening and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at, when he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn? I love that. Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? I hope that happens every Sunday. Verse 33. And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with him gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet that it is I myself, touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said these, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they were still disbelieved for joy, there's the phrase, and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish And he took it and ate before them. You know, we have this concept in America in this day and age that people of other countries or people of other uh, time periods were very gullible. They were easily swayed. We might think that of the disciples, that they were just kind of uneducated people who really bought into anything. But when we look at this account we would maybe accuse the disciples of being overly skeptical. 
They had seen the angels, the empty grave. They heard the scripture expounded. That should have been enough. But then they saw Jesus and they heard Jesus and they touched Jesus to get that undeniable confirmation that indeed he was raised from the dead. In the midst of their excitement and in the midst of their confusion and bewilderment, Jesus himself shows up and the first word he says to them is peace. You can imagine how startled they were. You can imagine how startled you would be if your great-grandpa shows up in your living room. It'd be scary. Unless he's still alive, then it'd be cool. But, <laughs> but it would be scary, right? And so he comes in and he says, peace. And then he condescends to them in grace. He doesn't say, why did you not believe my scripture? Why didn't you believe the angels? He says, touch the holes in my feet and in my hands. They're bewildered, disbelieving for joy. And then Jesus asked for food because a spirit does not eat food. See what's happening here is that Jesus, by his grace, is appealing to their senses. He is confirming their hope. He's giving them visible proof. They saw Jesus, audible proof. They heard Jesus and physical proof. They touched Jesus. Jesus. When I was in elementary school today, I don't know why I have a bunch of elementary school illustrations today, but when I was in elementary school, one of my good friends' name was Brent, and me and Brent rode up to our elementary school, or my elementary school, to go play on the playground. And at five o'clock, he said, well, we better be going home because I'm supposed to be home at 5.30 to eat. And so we started heading home, and as we started heading home, it was probably about a mile and a half away, there was this hot air balloon that came right over the street, very low. And so we turned our bikes around, and we went to go follow it to see where it was landing. It was landing in this farm field in the midst of this huge subdivision. And it landed, and a, and a van pulled up, and they attached ropes to it, and they started to give children rides in this hot air balloon. They would take them up, and then they'd pull the ropes and bring them back down, and and so we waited in line and we went on this hot air balloon ride. It was amazing. Why is that funny? Huh? But we got to see, you know, the, the balloon glow up. We get to hear the roar. We got to touch the wicker basket. So we get out and we start riding home and, 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 and Brent's dad intercepts us. And he's mad. So he calls him by his real name. He says, Walter Coleman, where are you? Where were you? Didn't you know you're supposed to be home for dinner? And he said, but dad, guess what? We got to go on a high air balloon ride. <laughs> and his dad said, Walter Coleman, don't you lie to me. <laughs> no, no, go drive around the corner. You'll go see it. Get home right now. And he took off. He didn't believe us. But if he had pulled around the corner, he would have seen the visible proof. He would have seen the glow of the balloon. He would have had audible proof, hearing the roar of the fires. He could have even had physical proof if he went and wrote it in himself. You see, the disciples were skeptical people. They were doubtful people. But Jesus came and he gave them undisputable evidence that he was alive, visible, audible, touchable proof. It goes on, verse 44. Then he, Jesus, said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Does this sound familiar? 
Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the Redeemer, should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. For the third time this chapter, Jesus or the disciples are pointed back to the words of God. Like the angels, Jesus points them back to his words during ministry. Like he did on the Maish Road, he pointed them back to the Old Testament to show them that this is all in fulfillment of the scripture. You see, the evidence of Jesus' resurrection was not only visible and audible and physical, it was also testified to for thousands of years. You know, I realize some of you are here today because a family member begged you to come. You're here today because it's tradition. And you might think, you know, this whole resurrection thing, it's just an idle tale. It's just a fairy tale that, that really got blown out of proportion over decades and centuries. But you see, Jesus' early disciples were not hopeful thinkers. In fact, they were scared skeptics. And yet they believed and dared to hope again. If the apostle's testimony is not enough, we read in 1 Corinthians 15, the apostle Paul says that the resurrection of Jesus came and appeared to 500 brothers at one time. And he says, most of them are still alive today. When he wrote that letter, he said, go ask them. They can tell you, they saw the resurrected Jesus. A a non-Christian historian named Josephus in 93 AD wrote this in a history book. He said, when Pilate, upon the accusation of the first men amongst us, condemned Jesus to be crucified, those who had formerly loved him did not cease to follow him, for he appeared to them on the third day, living again as the divine prophet foretold, along with a myriad of other marvelous things concerning him. Josephus was not a Christian, but he recognized that the visible, audible, physical, and prophetic proofs were so overwhelming that he had to record it as historical fact. If you doubt the resurrection of Christ, maybe God has brought you here today to doubt your doubts. I said it last week, and I get proved this time and time again, that it takes more faith to believe Jesus did not rise from the dead than it does to believe that he did rise from the dead. Because as you look through the evidence, it points to the truth of the resurrection. Our hope in Christ's resurrection has been confirmed, not because we have seen and touched and heard Jesus, but because other skeptics have on our behalf. And so at first, the disciples had a rejected hope. They disbelieved for joy. But soon the evidence became overwhelming and their hope was confirmed. And the only thing left to do was to proclaim hope, both horizontally and vertically. Look at verse 45 with me. Then Jesus opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witness to these things. The resurrection in all four gospel accounts necessitates proclamation. And it necessitates proclamations to all nations because 
This is a gospel of good news, not just for the apostles, not just for the Jews. It is the good news for all mankind. It is to originate in Jerusalem with those who have witnessed his resurrection, but then to spread out over all the earth, bringing the good news of the gospel. Verse 46 and 47 tell us the content of this gospel, that in light and in the proclamation of Christ's death and resurrection, that we are to go proclaiming repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. You see, Easter is good news and only good news for those who confess themselves to be sinners. In fact, Easter is the best news for those who are most convinced of their unworthiness, their shamefulness of their sin in their heart, the one that are most convinced of how horrible they are and how much they, they don't deserve to be in a relationship with God. For those people, Easter is the best news because it calls you to repentance, to confess your unworthiness, to confess your sinfulness, to confess that your sin justly deserves the judgment and wrath of God for all eternity. But then to know that God sent his son to die, that you may be forgiven for all of your sins. See, Easter tells us that forgiveness is free to us, but it was costly to God. You see, forgiveness is never free. Forgiveness always costs the person who's doing the forgiving. See, if I loaned you $10 and then I forgave you the debt, that would still cost me $10. God forgives your debts, but it wasn't free to him. He had to take your debt and put it upon his son, Jesus Christ. And yet he atoned to pay for your sin upon the cross, that it could be paid in full, that you could be forgiven, and then you could be raised to new life with Jesus Christ. Christ came and he raised from the dead, conquering Satan, sin, and death on our behalf. This is the good news. This is the gospel news. This is the best news, that the worst of sinners can be forgiven by a holy God because of his son, Jesus Christ. Christ. This is the living hope that we have, that we are called to proclaim to others. And as we go and proclaim this horizontally, we are told that we do not go alone, but that we go in resurrection power. Look at verse 49. It says, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, that is the Holy Spirit, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. You've heard of the book, Purpose Driven Life, probably. Here we are called to live a resurrection-driven life. One that not only testifies to the resurrection, but lives in the power of the resurrection. Romans 8, 11 says, But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. You see, Jesus had to leave in order to be closer to us, to be inside of us through his Holy Spirit. Maybe some of you here think Christianity is simply a life of moralistic behavior modification, but it is far greater than that. It is about experiencing the resurrection, living in the resurrection, proclaiming the resurrection, to preach the good news that there is forgiveness of sins, for all who repent and trust in Christ as their Savior. We are to proclaim horizontally to the hopeless, but we must also proclaim vertically to the one who has given our hope, us our hope and our joy. Look at verse 50. It says, Then, that's 40 days after the resurrection, 
Jesus led them out as far as Bethany and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted them, he, part, he departed from them and was carried up into heaven. This is called the ascension of Jesus. The last words of Jesus to his disciples is, is, is a blessing. It's a benediction like we do at the end of the service. And it mirrors the first words of God to people. In Genesis 1.28, God's first words to mankind is blessing. It says God blessed them. You see, Jesus came to earth to restore all the blessings of God that we had in Eden, that we could be reconnected with God in an intimate, glorious relationship with him. Verse 52, And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. I was listening to a sermon this week by Pastor Ligon Duncan, and he asked a tremendously profound question that I had never thought of before. He asked this question, why were the disciples happy? Why were they happy when Jesus left them? Why were they happy when Jesus ascended into heaven? At the Lord's Supper, they were sad when Jesus said, this is the last supper we're going to have together. I'm going to be leaving you. They were mad. They were angry. They were questioning. When Jesus died on the cross and was buried in the grave and he was gone, they were heartbroken, they were sad, they were crushed. But here, when Jesus leaves, the response is they worshiped him with great joy and they continually blessed God. Why were they happy that Jesus was now gone? Well, it's because they had finally figured it out. You see, previously, their reason for hope and joy was tethered to the wrong thing. The reason for hope was tethered to the fact that Jesus would be this political Messiah that would kick out the Romans. But now they finally understood that King Jesus did not come to set up an earthly political kingdom, but that he came to establish a heavenly, eternal kingdom. And he was going to heaven to prepare a place for them, a glorious place, one that will make this life seem like a distant memory, a place where he will make us holy and happy, a place where there will be no more death and no more pain, a place where we will be with Jesus forever. Maybe your hope has been crushed because you have tethered your ultimate hope to the wrong thing. Maybe you have tethered your ultimate hope to your career and things have gone downhill. Or maybe they've gone great, but it didn't provide the contentment that you expected and your contentment and your joy and your hope sank. Or maybe you have tethered your ultimate hope to your health and it's not gone the way that you have hoped and so it has sank. Maybe you have tethered your ultimate hope to a human love and they have either passed away or they have rejected you and your hope sank with them. God is showing us in the midst of all of that tragedy and all of that sorrow that we were made to tether our hope to something greater. We were made to tether our hope to a risen and living Christ who sits at the right hand of the Father, reigning and redeeming all things and preparing a place for you and me to come and enter his rest. 1 Corinthians 15 puts it this way. He says, if Christ had not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. You are right to be hopeless. But then it goes on. 
but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. For as by man, Adam came death, by man, Jesus has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all died, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. We were made to proclaim good news. We do it on Facebook. We do it all over the place. Baby's born, proclaim it. Junior graduated, proclaim it. State one, proclaim it. Christ has risen. This is the best news. We are to proclaim it horizontally to a hopeless world and vertically in worship to the object of our hope. Let me end with a question and an illustration. First, the question. Why was the stone rolled away from the tomb? Don't answer out loud. Why was the stone rolled away from the tomb? I asked a friend this on Friday, you know who you are. And um, he thought and he said, bodily resurrection. Jesus had to get out. The stone was rolled away. But as we look through the gospel accounts, what we see is Jesus's physical body passes through walls. It, it vanishes like it did in, on the Mace Road. It appears other places. And so why was the stone rolled away? You see, the stone was not rolled away so that Jesus could get out. The stone was rolled away so that the disciples could get in. The stone was rolled away so that Jesus could give them a resurrected and certain hope. In the movie, Forrest Gump, Forrest goes through significant trauma in his life. His father leaves him. He's bullied. He's shot at. He's actually shot. He loses loved ones, loses loves, loses hope, loses purpose. And so one day he decides to go for a run. Maybe you remember this. And he goes out for a run and he keeps running and running and running for days and days and days. And he's running back and forth across America. And he starts to get this following of people that come. And it says even that somebody later told him that it gave people hope and he wasn't sure why. But then one of his followers comes up looking to Forrest for help, for hope. And he says, Forrest, I'm looking for an idea for a bumper sticker. And more or less, Forrest's words of hope and inspiration are this. Stuff happens. Bad stuff happens. All of us know that stuff happens, that bad stuff happens. But here is the good news of the gospel. Sunday happens and Jesus is alive. Let us proclaim with one voice our hope together. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Christ is risen he is risen indeed. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for the hope that we have tethered to a living hope. Jesus Christ, who did not sink, but raises us up with him in heaven to be seated in the heavenly realms. Thank you for the hope that we have in Christ. Remind us of this hope day in and day out for our joy and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. If you look in your bulletin, you'll see there are a lot of announcements. I'm not going to announce them, but they're important. Please look at them. Right now, we're going to take a fellowship break. I know this feels weird. Grab your kids from Children's Church. We'll come back here for a resurrection celebration together.
See anything? No. Okay. Yeah. Where's my timepiece? There she is. No, we're doing it. Oh my God. There's one song. 